but I, the one thing I do think is that nobody gets a pass, right? You don't, you don't get a pass. You can't just throw up your hands and say, I have nothing to do. There's always something to do, right? There's always something to do. And it could be so simple as educating yourself, helping others, you know, opening doors for others. You get to decide your level of commitment to it. But I think that, you know, we all have a role to play in that, big or small. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Doing really well. I, I feel like I have to say really well because I always say I'm doing well, and so I need to mix it up for you. I was about to say, you're pivoting just slightly. Yeah. Just, it's still well, though, so we're, we're still working on it. We're going to get <laughs> well, to like fantastic or something at some point. Yeah, I mean, I've basically just been in my house for eight months, so I'm not sure that I could say... I'm doing perfectly. Yeah, that's but, true. That's a good point. But we're making it. How about you guys? Yep, making it happen. Making it happen. I'm um, I'm just in the DIY mode again. I don't know what it is. It's this is what happened in 2020. It was the beginning of 2020 that I was in the DIY mode, and at the end, I just kind of spittered out. So I'm back in it, and uh, I think we're finally getting a table saw. So cabinets galore are coming my way. So we will see what happens the next couple months. I'm excited. Table saw. Wait, you're going to make your own cabinets? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. So wow. I've, I've seen a picture. It was, I was actually watching QVC one day. It was like their Christmas episode. And they had these beautiful cabinets in the background that were all decorated. And I'm like, those are the exact cabinets I went. So they've got like barn doors on it. And I want them to be a specific size to fit in our dining room. They would have floating shelves above it. So... I've got, I've got the picture. I don't know how to actually execute it. That's where my husband, the engineer comes in. Um, and then he actually cuts everything for me, but yeah, it's, it's going to get there. Wow. That is extremely interesting. <laughs> <laughs> You're that, uh, so, okay. So a little s slight story. So a few years ago, I had a similar conversation with my spouse and she's like, I want to build a table. And I was like, well, we don't know how to build a table. She's like, well, I still want to build a table. I was like, I, I don't know if you really know how. And she's like, I'll show you. And she did. She just built a table. So hey. it is possible. And if you need somebody to sort of like doubt you so that then that can get your competitive spirit going, apparently I'm the guy. <laughs> All right. Doubt me on these cabinets. That's okay? right. So whenever, whenever, you're, whenever you're thinking about it, you be like, that guy. He's the worst. And he said, I couldn't do it. I'm going to show him. <laughs> show Brent. I'm going to have Let's some fabulous him. cabinets in the next three to six months because it's probably going to take a real long time to get it right. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Very fun. Yeah. Well, we should probably do a podcast as well. So today we are lucky to be joined by Anna and Jayakante. Anna is a financial planner in New York and is somebody that uh, we really admire and we thought we could have a really fun conversation with. And so Anna, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I have to say, just hearing this conversation, I admire anybody who can deal with it. power tools. <laughs> I am not the person that is adept at power tools. 
I'm not I'm, either. I'm not either. I'm probably like the least manly man on the planet in that way. I, I, I have none of those skills. Zero, zero. <laughs> I'm working my way up. I got the drill mastered. I, I did that the other weekend when we did our, our rollout shelves in our, in our cabinet. So I think you just got to take the big step and table saw is next, right? Ooh. Might as well. Bravo. <laughs> uh anna for the for the like three people in the world who don't know who you are can you uh explain who you are yeah um so i am a the ceo and founder of data dream financial planning so you know i work primarily with uh women of color that are entrepreneurs and are really seeking to build wealth and really change the trajectory of their family, right? Um, and so, you know, I'm a, I'm a traditional, uh, well, actually, I won't say I'm traditional. I'm non-traditional financial advisor that uses a lot of the traditional tools that, that our industry has. Um, I'm a certified financial planner. And I've been in the business about 10 years. You know, I started my career doing, I would assume, a lot of things that you all are very familiar with, trust and estate work, and like working with ultra high net worth individuals. And I left about two years ago, um, I was last at RBC Wealth Management, I left about two years ago to start my own firm, so that I could really break the mold and do things the way I wanted to do them. Yeah, we get that. We get that. We came out of a big law firm. And big law firm is probably somewhat like big bank in the sense, uh, not I'm not identical, obviously, but uh, in the sense that big law firm is a very big machine, and operating within very big machine can be cumbersome uh, if you have any sort of entrepreneurial like aspirations. We'll say. Yeah, and I think you know I am someone that um, I'm always questioning why we do things in a certain way, and um, bureaucracy does not like the question why do we do it this way. <laughs> so um, you know the fact that I wanted to you know serve people in a non-traditional way, I think just wasn't going to be a great fit. And frankly, also I'm incredibly impatient and you need lots of patience to um, <laughs> to work in big big corporations so it just was better that I went and did my own thing and I can be impatient all I want <laughs> yeah, you're, you can only be impatient with yourself now exactly <laughs> so what has what has that process been like then in terms of building your own practice building your own business because you're not you know you're saying that you you're or you're mentioning that you are you're kind of serving entrepreneurs as your clients, but you yourself are an entrepreneur. So kind of what has that experience been like for you? Yeah, um, it's definitely been eye-opening. Um, I will say it has taught me a lot about myself. Uh, it's it's an emotional roller coaster, you know, up and down. What am I doing? But I, I, I waver between like, you know, the high highs are like, yes, this is amazing. I'm doing great. And then, you know, I alternately will question what I, my direction in life <laughs> based on the series of weeks I've had. But um, it's been wonderful. I think, you know, it's, it's a big shift to go from um, employee to entrepreneur, right? And to really think about how you're spending your time and what adds value and what is going to be the most result producing for you, right? Because so it's just a different skill set. Um, and I think, um, you know, I don't come from an entrepreneurial background. My parents are the types that like, you know, got a job and they worked it for 40 years and they never left. Right. And so it was also a big learning experience for me uh, because I didn't really have anybody I could talk to about 
any of this really, you know, um, that would kind of understand and be able to advise me and how I go about it besides my sweet husband, who's very supportive. Uh, but he's also not an entrepreneur, so he can only help me with so much. Right. Yeah. That's very interesting. Uh, somewhat, it was somewhat similar for me when I, when I told my parents I was leaving as a partner in a big law firm, so leaving that law firm to basically be an entrepreneur. Although we're at a firm, the firm really just handles the background business function for mm. us. They were like, you're going to do what? What? Why would you do that? Like you're, you're at a really big, good firm. And just like this idea of walking, you know, walking out the door, not spending 40 years at one spot, I think generationally was foreign to them. Totally. Um, I had a lot of questions with my parents. They're like, what are you doing? Can you see if they'll let you go part-time? Like, what do you, why would you do this? Um, you know, you have, you have, a, I have children. So, and my husband works and he, you know, he earns a good living and he's doing well in his career. But at the same time, my parents, you know, they also raised me very much to be an independent woman. Right. And to have my income and to have my education and, and my career and, and have that be a, a very important part of my life. And so I think they were also very concerned, despite my husband being wonderful, like she's going to leave everything and God knows what's going to happen to her. Um, now they're shocked at the, I don't think they're shocked, but I think that they're pleasantly surprised at how well my business has been going and the stress has abated. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> so what led you to the financial sector and kind of what, what inspired you to get involved and, in, you know, to get your CFP certification and everything? Yeah, um, it was definitely accidental. Um, you know, I, this was not even a world that I was remotely familiar with. And I think it is very different than, you know, even when I started in the business. Um, you know, I graduated college in the Great Recession. Things were tough. I just was taking whatever job I could find, <laughs> as, as so many people were. And, um, you know, I just ended up, I, I speak Spanish fluently, so I ended up having a job where I was working with people who wanted, like, B2B events for people who wanted to work in Latin America and do business in Latin America. And one of them was on wealth management. And, you know, because that, that used to be, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, that used to be a very big sector in Latin America, less so now, right? And through that, I just discovered that there was a whole world and a whole career that sounded like it would utilize a lot of the skill sets that I have and that I, I things that I enjoy doing. And, you know, about six months later, I'd say I, after doing that event, I started working in wealth management, um, first at very large asset management firm and then, you know, moved around a bit to different facets of the industry. But, you know, I really wanted, I saw, I saw that the planning, you know, I like to problem solve. So I saw that the planning aspect of it, right, was really what drew my attention. I was never really that interested in investments per se. I wasn't, a, I'm not a market nerd, right? Like there are those people that, you know, they, they just enjoy reading, um, you know, quarterly earnings reports and that stuff. That's not my thing. My thing is really figure, taking what a client wants to achieve, taking what they already have, right? Looking for things that can be optimized and improved there. And then also figuring out how we can get them to the end goal, right? That That's always been what I really enjoyed. And planning was the way I could do that. That completely hits home with us. I think that's like exactly what, you know, Brent and I do, right? It's, it's, we see what the client has, what, what are their goals for the next 10 years, 20 years, what, what are their goals for their legacy? And then how can we achieve that for them? And so let's do that long-term planning. And I like you, I, I love planning. I've always been like a planner. 
my whole life where I, I think this is the first time in my life that I don't actually have a written planner because I'm finally now in the digital age of using my, my calendar on my computer. But before just, I, I always love that. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's finding your skill set and, and pairing that with your career and then kind of letting it go from there. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think, I think some of the best things in life come when you're just open to potential, right? So that's how it, that's how it ended up. Very cool. So one thing that uh, we've kind of been, we've kind of been tiptoeing around vis-a-vis kind of our professional lives and, and what we do for our clients is just helping clients to build wealth from whatever, you know, whatever starting point they happen to be. And everybody's at a different starting point. So sort of in your mind, Anna, what do you think are the keys to helping clients to begin to build wealth again, regardless of where they are as a starting point? You know, I think, I think so much of it translates regardless of, you know, wealth level, right? Um, what I find is having a focus and, it, and having a concrete sense of what you're trying to achieve is oftentimes the most valuable, right? So if you look at, you know, some of the most basic, um, some of the most basic struggles that people have, if, you know, they're, maybe they're not particularly wealthy, but they're trying to, you know, save well and, and for their future. <clears throat> if you don't know why you're saving or investing or why it's important for you, and you don't have concrete goals, I think then you just end up kind of flailing and not making much progress, right? Um, even on the higher wealth level, you know, I, my, my previous employer, you know, we didn't work with any, most of our clients were between 10 and $20 million net worth, right? Those are very wealthy people. And even there, you would see a, a great variety of commitments to a purpose, right? There were some clients who, you know, they had annual family meetings and they had charitable, you know, um, charitable mission statements for their family. And they really had clarity around what they wanted their wealth to be doing for them and their family members and the, the um, causes that they supported. And I found that they were the ones that were most successful and also just had the most success in terms of transferring the wealth to their children, right? So all across the board, it's the having the focus, the why, and the, the driving factor. And then from there, you can really get to optimizing, you know, creating different types of um, structures or, or investing in different types of accounts and, you know, tax planning and all of those kind of really important things that are valuable that we do. But if the client doesn't have the clarity on what they want and why they want it, then I find that they just don't make much traction. Yeah, well, there's just so much in that uh, that I really like Ho honing in very specifically on on that idea of like finding finding the the end goal. To me, it just seems so important for as you point out quite rightly. I think like it, wherever somebody is starting out, like finding that end goal. It, until you find that end goal, or until we see clients who find that end goal, as as you say, they flail. Right? They they struggle to find a course that makes any sort of sense that's rational. And it tends to be that they just sort of bounce back and forth depending on what their emotional response to one event or the other happens to be at the moment. Uh, is that pretty consistent for you or are we on an island? No, 100%. I'm nodding vigorously for those of you that aren't seeing this video. But um, I find that that is when people get really distracted by the new hot thing, right? They see, they read something in the Wall Street Journal that talks to them about, you know, different tax deductions, or they, 
you know, why am I not um, doing a, a DAF this year? I need to do a donor advice fund this year because, you know, 2020 had a lot of benefits, as I'm sure you guys know, on, on charitable giving. Why am I not doing that this year? It's like, well, because we haven't had the conversations about what your charitable goals are. So we're not just going to throw money places in an effort to save money because long term, you just are not making traction towards what you want, right? And I, I think it's, it's particularly more impactful as people are first starting out on their wealth building journey, right? Because if you, you know, you have a lot more capacity for error or like room for error when you're very wealthy, obviously, you know, each, each um, mistake has a larger, probably larger dollar amount, but you know, there's, there's the effects of compounding and there's the effects of, you know, if you are putting yourself in adverse financial situations as you're starting out, that means maybe you don't have as much money working for you and growing for you for your future or whatever it is that you're, that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And I, I, again, totally agree. Lots, lots of really good tidbits in there. And I think the, the one that really resonates, at least for me in terms of, again, what I see for, for our clients is just this idea of understanding what it is that you're doing in that year and then how it fits into the broader picture. So like you brought up the, the charitable giving. So I'll have clients uh, come to me and they'll say, yeah, we want to do charitable giving. I'm like, that's fantastic. So how much do you want to give to charity? Well, we don't know. Well, do you want to just write a check to charity and be done with it? Or do you want to say, give them money and you retain an annuity stream off of that or vice versa, give the charity an annuity stream. You keep the back end. They're like, we don't know. We, we, we have no idea. It's like, well, you have, you have a vague idea of what you want to do. Now we need to really kind of refine it down and be very, very specific about the thing that you want to do. And then once we've refined it down and be very specific about the thing that you want to do with charity, all of a sudden, the power of giving dollars to charity is, is meaningful and it can have the effect that clients want. But until they've really kind of narrowed in on the exact thing they want to do, even kind of having this concept, say, giving to charity from year to year is, is just not getting, it will not get them to the goal. That's in point we were talking about. It won't get them there until they've kind of gone through the whole process. And I feel like that's where advisors like you uh, or professionals like us and, and others are really adding the value for clients year to year and trying to figure out what they want to do year to year and then trying to figure out how does that fit into the bigger picture. Totally. Um, you know, what I do with my clients is we do an overall statement of financial purpose, right? And that starts with having a why, right? What is it that you're trying to achieve with your life? Like forget about finances, right? What is it that you're trying to achieve with your life? And then that is going to inform the goals that you set. And then all of the strategies that we're going to do, like the strategies are, we'll get there, but you have to have the clarity on the why and the what before I can tell you anything. Cause just like you mentioned, there are, you know, I can give you dozens of ideas of how to achieve what you're trying to achieve, but I need to know what that is and have you make sure that you've thought through it concretely, you know, before we can, we can start making any changes. Absolutely. And I think to what you said earlier, Anna, about, involving the younger generations, right? If you've got this generational wealth going on, if you want to keep it going, if that's one of your family goals, getting those younger generations involved. We see so many clients who, you know, they, in, in their lifetime, they are the earners. They're the ones who've really generated this wealth and they don't want to talk about it to the, the children or the grandchildren because they, they don't want it to, to corrupt the children. And I understand that point completely but to keep it going, you need to involve the young. We always think you need to 
need to involve the generation, the younger generations early to let them understand what this money is. Let them understand what the family mission statement is, like you said, so then they can keep it going and not just one day have tens of millions of dollars fall into their lap and then they have no idea what to do with it. Let's start to teach them about the money now so then your goals can continue down the family lineage. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I find the irony of that is that a lot of times by not having the conversation, they do end up corrupting the children, you know. Um, I think it, it's like you, you wouldn't anticipate that, but I find that, you know, then the heirs are stunned and shocked and, and really, you know, they haven't thought about it or maybe they knew they would get something, but they didn't know how much and in what form. And so maybe their finances are not even set up to appropriately receive that money. All right. So one of the sort of subtexts also that we're that we're teeing up here, I think, is is just how generational wealth as it exists today, I'll say, uh, not necessarily saying and then not necessarily saying this would apply on if you looked at like an individual to individual basis, but this is more as a broader proposition, how generational wealth actually, uh, at least statistically, tends to fall on racial, social, economic lines and you know, why that is. And so, you know, just sort of curious about your thoughts of, first of all, why that is. Maybe that may not necessarily be proscriptive, but just sort of descriptive of why that is. And then maybe we can talk a little bit more about the proscriptive side of how that happens, how you change it. Does that make sense? Or am I, am I teeing that up uh, clearly enough? No, it's totally clear. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of conversations about like the racial wealth gap, right? And I, and I find that the simplest explanation is really goes back to compound interest, right? So if you, generation upon generation, are, have a base to build on, even if it's slim, right? Even if your parents don't leave you very much, you know, we have populations in this country, especially like African-Americans, the descendants of slaves, right? they compound interest has actually been working against them right and so there's generations to catch up on right because you know of, of a lot of discriminatory practices in terms of laws you know we talk about redlining you talk about discriminatory predatory lending all of these kind of things specifically mostly around um housing i think that and and, and property ownership that is really the basis of that but the reality is, is that there's a whole swath of the population, whether their family has been in America for generations or is even more recent, that does not have a, a solid base to build off of, right? Because of these external factors partially, or sometimes, you know, just like me, you know, I'm first generation American. My father arrived in America with a suitcase. He was 24 years old. He had to do it on his own, right? And I don't fault him for anything at all. Like, I think he's incredible considering where he started and where he is now, right? Um, but that meant that I didn't have a real base to build off of, right? So it was really just, you have less of that compounding time, right? And as we all know, right, as you start to build wealth and save and invest, you know, you think about it on a personal level, the early years are not very... Um, you know, they're, they're, you just don't see that much progress. It's only after a lot of time that you start to see a lot of progress, right? And continued effort and, and adding on to, to the progress that you've made thus far. Um, and I also think, you know, even more, more people with newer roots in America, you know, we're still um, subject to a lot of, you know, predatory lending and um, really discriminatory like banking um, products 
that that have been happening up until very recently are still happening. Um, you know, you see like uh, payday loans and title loans and those kind of things are disproportionately targeted in lower income areas. And that's that's not just on a racial line. That's just really a socioeconomic um, lines, as we had talked about. And but the, the whole byproduct of all of that is that we're we're, you know, uh, black, Latino, Asian American, you know, indigenous populations, just people tend, those people tend to be on a lower uh, socioeconomic spectrum. And that just means that there, there's just a lot more to catch up with, right? And I think, you know, my biggest, my biggest advice for anybody that's trying to, you know, make progress above and beyond that, what I teach my clients is, you know, you have to have the, you know, I think it's difficult sometimes because we tend to come at this conversation from the perspective of like, I never learned about money and I don't understand much about money and nobody in my family has any money. Like we're just broke or they're just broke and I don't know anything. And they, and, and that can oftentimes be extrapolated to it's always going to be that way. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I come from a family that is not particularly money fluent. Right. However, I'm a CFP, right? Like that can change. And most of my clients, frankly, are first generation American, or they just were the ones that said, okay, this stops with me. And I'm going to make a conscious effort to shift the trajectory of my family. Um, and, and I think the, the first step is really just the education, taking the, and, and not beating yourself up over not having that knowledge, right? Just saying, okay, I'm just going to go out there and learn. And I think secondly, like having that strong why applies in this situation too, because it's that much more difficult to build wealth and stay focused and stay on track when you don't have anyone to consult with, right? That, that can give you advice. You know, I talked about that in terms of business, but even in personal finance, like I could never ask my parents about what type of investments I should get or what I should put in my 401k. They had no clue. And, you know, I think you just have to have that fortitude and that strength and that commitment to the to the end goal in order to keep yourself strong because it's going to feel very isolating and lonely, I think, which thankfully due to social media, I think it's shifting quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let me, let me kind of try and break down some of the really good tidbits you had in there. And I'm sure I'm going to miss some because that was really good. So one of the things that you mentioned was compounding interest. And I actually think you, you mentioned it in two different contexts. So understanding the power of compounding interest to your benefit Right. And I think that goes to the it being educated sort of about the tools of investing and, and saving and, and, and growing wealth. And then the compound interest that works against you, like payday lending or, or predatory lending that also has interest that compounds that is bad for you. Uh, and having understanding the, dif- the distinction between the two and why one is so toxic and one is so fertilizing for uh, the growth of investments is is really important. And there's a, there's a relatively in the lawyer world, a relatively famous uh, attorney named Jonathan Blotmacher. And the Jonathan Blotmacher comment is after, of course, sifting through a bunch of studies that the, the single most powerful thing on the planet in terms of building wealth is tax-free compounding interest. There's nothing else that is more powerful than tax-free compounding interest. And yeah, of course, nobody's been arguing with him because, of course, that's right. Because um, if it's tax-free, it's going to compound at a higher rate of interest, and compounding interest mm-hmm. is so powerful. But that, just that concept and understanding that concept is such an entry point to then understanding all of the sort of tools in the tool shed. 
I love that. And I, and I agree. I've never heard that, but I agree wholeheartedly. I think, you know, understanding the, the knock-on effects, you know, you talk about going back to the compounding, understanding the knock-on effects of these very small decisions you're making now that don't seem to be that substantial, right? They just seem like they're, they're one-off. They have like real long-term consequences or benefits, right? Um, for your, your long-term financial health and, you know, the financial health of your family and next generations. And so I think, you know, and, and I recognize that it's very difficult um, to, you know, know what you don't know and understand that the way you're trying to approach something might not necessarily be the most advantageous, right? So now you, nowadays you see a whole new generation of people that are getting into investments, right? And that's mostly through like Robinhood. That's great, but they only offer taxable investment accounts, right? And so you're missing out on that tax-free compound interest, which really is what makes the difference. So instead of spending your time worried about like what's the next great great stock or leveraging, you know, shorting certain stocks or, you know, buying leveraged investment products, you really could just spend your time throwing some money in an IRA, Roth traditional, it really doesn't matter that much, to be, especially as you're just getting started. Um, that, that decision is not going to make or break you, but throwing the money in there and letting it do its thing and not trying to pretend like you're the next Warren Buffett can, can be really, really impactful. <laughs> it's so funny. What you just said is like my husband to a T. I've, I've told Brett about this. My husband just got into investing uh, late last year and he's really good at it. He's, he, he's like what you said, he, he truly enjoys reading all the quarterly reports. I mean, he's listening to all the podcasts. He's, he's doing everything. I don't even know all that he does because he just loves it so much. But there's the simple things that you can do, right? And for someone who is, like you said, at that, that very base, I just want to start building wealth. How do I start doing that? There's so many little simple things you can do. You don't have to jump right in and get the Robinhood account and start day trading all day long. There's little tiny steps that you can make to start doing the, to get the snowball effect going. And then once you start, it's, it's getting that confidence, right? Like, oh, I finally do have a Roth IRA. Great. Okay. Look at this. Yay. I'm doing something. All right. How about I start maxing out my 401k at my work now? all right, I'm doing this. Do I have some credit card debt? Yeah, I really should start paying that off. Let's get the highest interest rate. And you really start seeing those effects of, okay, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And in today's world, I feel like being money savvy and kind of knowing how to be uh, the, the most efficient with your money and build wealth, I think it's, it's, it's in right now. It's, it's a hot thing. It's all over social media, I see. And so because of that, it's really easy to learn. You know, in the age of I can YouTube anything, there's a podcast for everything these days. It's you can make it so that you don't just have to go grab a book and start reading and figuring this stuff out. There's so many different ways to learn about it that you can get started just in that little small area and then really go from there. Totally. And I will say that, um, you know, I think for anybody who is sort of in that first crop of people in their family or from their town or whatever, that really is aiming a little bit higher. I think that there's this feeling of like desperation, which I understand, like I have lost time to make up for, right? Like I don't have margin for error or I'm doing this not just for me, but I'm doing it for my parents or my siblings or whoever. Right. And so rushing means that you make mistakes right and then you're you're kind of once again going back to our 
how we kind of started this conversation, you, you end up flailing between a whole bunch of different things and not actually making much progress. Whereas if you kind of do the slow and steady, well, it's boring. And in the first few years, you're not going to see much progress, right? If you do the things like you were saying, Rachel, I think you, you just end up seeing that much more traction. So I think the, the, the statistic, I think we've sort of, uh, we've sort of alluded to this, well, this was in 2019, so I don't know if this necessarily captures the current status of the world post-pandemic, but at least in 2019, the median family wealth in white families was somewhere around 200,000, and the median family wealth in black families was 24,000. So obviously, a very, very big split there, which cannot be explained by white people are just so smart and black communities are not that smart because that's just not true. I, I know lots of white people and they're not that smart. So, <laughs> so it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a matter of just like inherently being super smart. It's a I, it seems from what we're kind of describing here, it's more a matter of a access to information, perhaps uh, B understanding how to then use that information for you. And then C also understanding how to avoid the bad things. And if, you know, if you're not, if, if you're not being told or not being educated on those pieces, it's hard to even know what the tools are that are being used to create this gap, right? Totally. And, um, you know, there's an amazing book on called The Color of Wealth. I don't know if either of you have read that, but it, it talks a lot about this. Um, and it talks all about like, this issue, you know, some of these these societal like systemic issues and, and why that um, wealth gap exists. But I think at the end of the day, you know, wealth is not just like a bank account or some property, right? There's also the knowledge that is intergenerational wealth, right? And, you know, it's funny because my, my husband and I, we're both first generation Americans, right? My husband's family, you know, I was, I talked about my dad, but my, my father-in-law is probably like the most incredible person ever in terms of his trajectory. Like he grew up in a village with no running water, six hours from any major city in Africa, didn't, didn't go more than like equivalent of like fifth or sixth grade in in terms of schooling came to america had seven kids here <laughs> and started his own business and he got his gd and all of his kids have like master's degrees or more right and so like that right there is incredible but but so my husband is is the phd of the family he's incredibly smart and very driven but we were talking the other day about how much harder it was for him to figure out how to navigate just basic things, college applications and whether he should get an internship or not, or um, because he just didn't have that knowledge that his parents could share with him. They, they shared work ethic with him. They shared values and morals and how to be a good person. That is like, they got it down pat, but that taking it to the next level was totally missing. And so we had to do a lot of stumbling, right? in figuring it out. And, you know, he always talks, he, he played college football, right, in college and, and talks about how, you know, he he chose that because he liked football. Like what 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 teenage boy in America doesn't like football? But um, he, he also did it because it was gonna pay for school. And that was a real economic need that he had. And so he had to focus on that. And 
you know, he was saying how he always used to tease the kids that would get internships in college because it's like, you guys, like, you're just going to work every day and you're not getting paid. But that was because he didn't really have the knowledge to see how that would pay off, right? And so now he sees it in retrospect and he's like, I would have been so much further in life <laughs> and in my career had I had that, right? tied in with the work ethic and all of those other great things that he did get from his parents. So I think that is a huge part of the puzzle, navigating just the, the, the system that you might not have exposure to beyond financial is also a form of wealth and a, I think a gift that, that a lot of other communities have. Absolutely. And I'm about to go on a little soapbox right now, but it, this, I feel like it, it's, it starts at the young age, right? And then it goes to a lot of people's arguments that you need to have this like adulting 101 class in high school, right? And just, just to expose you to some of these concepts, right? Like in, in high school, depending on, you know, your, where you're, you're getting your education at, you may not have a, a career counselor to help you fill out college applications. So you have no idea how to navigate that world to your point. Then it's like, all right, how do I get uh, health insurance? How do I navigate that? What, what, is, what even is health insurance? And what is this deductible thing? So trying to figure out all those little things coming from a place, again, like you said, if, if you don't have that in your family, your family's never been exposed to that, it's, it's really hard. And, and again, in this day and age, you could Google, YouTube, everything, but you really have to have that why at the end of the day, like you said, to motivate yourself to really learn and, and get past all of these extra barriers where if we can just expose kids at a, at a younger age to just just the basic little information just so they have a little bit of knowledge maybe you can pique their interest and then they could start uh researching it get the ball rolling i think that would help immensely in in trying to uh close this wealth gap that we have and that and that social capital kind of gap that you're you were mentioning anna that uh it's it's not just about understanding say how iras work or how the contribution limits work or you know, what the VTI fund at Vanguard is or anything like that. It's also having access to some amount of that social capital. And that's not as easy to solve for, I don't think, um, on an individual basis, right? Like an individual person can't just give themselves social capital, whereas they can give themselves knowledge potentially by, you know, watching YouTube or reading literature to, to figure out how IRAs work and how investing in IRAs work. So that it seems like that is an important component that's maybe harder to solve than the financial toolbox piece. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, I think it is, you know, I think 2020 just pointed out to so many of us that there was a lot of things that were wrong. So in, in the country, right, in terms of like the social dynamics. And, I, and I'm very grateful that it has opened a lot of people's eyes. But for me personally, you know, it, it really strengthen my resolve to make sure that I am in some measure contributing to like a systemic change like that. So for me, you know, you talk about my why I want, you know, I have three daughters. I want them to, you know, inherit a world that is easier for them, that is more equitable and more fair. And, you know, part of my hopeful legacy for them is to have some of that social capital and to have a network. So you know, I'm not the type that waits for an invite, right? I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build my own thing, right? <laughs> so I think there has to be enough of us that are willing to say, okay, obviously we need to, we, we don't live in a, we're not delusional, we don't live in a vacuum. We have to have some sort of fluency in 
how all of this stuff works. Like you were talking about, Rachel, there's so many things that, that contribute to people's overall well-being, right? I think, I think we have to have awareness of that, but we don't have to wait for those doors necessarily to be open to us. Um, and so my goal is to create more spaces one, create more wealthy women, frankly, that can create their own spaces and, you know, create their own networks and really like break the paradigm of, you know, men are the wealthy ones and men are the one that manage money. And, you know, especially in communities of color, like um, we, we don't necessarily have access to those same knowledge base and institutions and systems that have benefited others for so long. So like some of that, we just need to do our own thing and i'm i'm firmly committed to doing that and i and i see that same resolve with a lot of my clients that are very hyper focused on this but then also i think there are a lot of people that are saying like okay i have access to this so i'm going to open the door and make sure that like there are others that that are invited and i think those two things are going to really shift the dynamic of our country which is what i'm hopeful for yeah me too yeah very very interesting I think if I'm if I'm capturing what you're suggesting correctly and 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 obviously correct me if I'm wrong Anna but you know there's a there's a certain amount of introspection of looking at yourself and then a certain amount of just like looking at everybody else and understanding like yes there are things that that each individual can do if if they're a driven person like you are and then understanding contextually like if if that works for you that you can you can reach out and also help other people because maybe not everybody has the level of self motivation that you have but that doesn't mean that they can't succeed either right it just means they're in a different place it's sort of it's uh, we uh, a friend of ours Eugene George would put it as as money stories you know everybody has like a different uh, a different uh, emotional attachment to money or a different sort of hist historical story that relates to money and wealth. And so everybody's coming at it from a slightly different perspective. And so some people need somebody to reach out and kind of help them down the road. And that's totally fine. That's normal. That's just human nature. Totally. I agree. Um, I think, you know, there, there are different levels of commitment, right? I am, I am radically committed <laughs> to making some big shifts, right? Um, you know, my personal fight is with, you know, um, my good homie, shout out to Emlyn Miles Mattingly. He talks about changing the complexion of wealth, right? And so I'm all about that. I'm also about changing the, the complexion of the financial services industry and the diversity there. I think that's hugely important. But I think, you know, you don't have to have this big agenda in order to be impactful, right? If you are working in a corporation, maybe you can say, okay, I'm going to make a concerted effort to hire diverse people, right? or even just give kids an internship, right? Or fight for your interns to be paid because that means that you're gonna get a more diverse candidate base because you know, a lot of kids, me included, could not really afford to have unpaid internships. You know, I, the times I did have them, I would go to the internship in the day and then I would work at night because I, that was the only way I could make it happen, right? And I did that all summer just to make ends meet, right? That's the reality for so many people, but there are so many smaller things that you can do to be impactful, right? But I, the one thing I do think is that nobody gets a pass, right? You don't, you don't get a pass. You can't just throw up your hands and say, I have nothing to do. There's always something to do, right? There's always something to do. And it could be so simple as educating yourself, helping others, you know, opening doors for others. You get to decide your level of commitment to it. But I think that, you know, we all have a role to play in that, big or small. 
All right. Well, I certainly appreciate that. And I think we'll, I think we'll leave it there. But uh, it's such a pleasure to chat with you, Anna. Uh, we could not thank you enough for spending time with us and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. Um, I'm always happy to talk about, you know, generational wealth and, and building wealth and the, the best ways to go about it uh, because it's, I'm a bit of a wealth nerd, I guess, <laughs> if I can coin that term. <laughs> you got it. We, we'll, we'll give it to you. So should, uh, should folks want to reach out to you, how do they find you? Yeah, so um, my website is daretodreamplanning.com. Um, in terms of social media, you can find me on mostly on Twitter or Instagram at um, at A-N-J-I-E-K-O-N-T-E. Um, and then I'm also on LinkedIn, just search my name, if you can figure out how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, put it we'll put it in the show notes. So There you go. <laughs> any, anyone look, looking to spell it uh, doesn't have to do it on their own. There you uh, go. Well, again, thank you very much, Anna. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.